which I am now doing. Perfect. Okay, so today's topic is the Trinity. We finished up a couple weeks ago the doctrines of God's Word, and then we've started last week in uh, doctrines of God. That's kind of the overarching subject we're talking about. We talked about last week the attributes of God. We just kind of listed them off and looked at different Bible verses that talk about God's attributes. This week, um, and I'm kind of breaking the Trinity up into two parts. Um, not that God can be broken up into parts, and we've talked about that, but um, there's just a lot to cover with the Trinity, and so I thought it would be helpful to kind of give like a positive presentation of like, what is the Trinity? What are we supposed to believe? And then next week, look into what are some different errors people have committed when talking about the Trinity before. And one of those it isn't a heresy, but is going to be from our beloved Wayne Grudem. So he, we're, we're, we're excited about that. Anyway, he's not a heretic. I love Wayne Grudem. I wouldn't be having you guys read a heretic. Um, <laughs> And it's, well, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. He's a, he's a great guy. Anyway, um, so I thought, I know this is not typical with how I'm usually doing. I usually give a bunch of Bible verses at the beginning, but I thought I would actually read the Nicene Creed at the beginning because it is kind of the summary of what we believe about the Trinity. And then from there, I'm going to go into a bunch of different Bible verses for how we got there and why we talk about the Trinity the way that we do. Because you might know this, you might not. The word Trinity never occurs in the Bible, actually. The, the word Trinity is a title we've given to God, and it's a doctrinal truth that's faithful to the Bible, but it's a summary. So even the word Trinity itself isn't straight up from the Bible. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm going to use the word Trinity. I like the word Trinity. I think it's good. I think it's worth using. So anyway, I'm going to read the Nicene Creed, and that's going to give us a framework of where we're going, and then we're going to get there. So here we go. Um, we believe in one God, Father, all-sovereign, maker of heaven and earth, of all things seen and unseen, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who was begotten from the Father before all the ages, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, same nature with the Father, through whom all things came into existence, who because of us men and our salvation came down from heaven, and was incarnated by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man, was crucified on our behalf by Pontius Pilate, and suffered, and was buried, and arose on the third day according to the scriptures, and descended into heaven, and is seated at the right of the Father, and is coming again with glory to judge the living and the dead, of whose kingdom there will be no end, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, who makes us alive, who proceeds from the Father, who is worshipped and glorified together with the Father, and the Son, who has spoken through the prophets. In one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, we await the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the coming age. Amen. So, we're not going to dig into every aspect of that, but there's a lot of Trinity in there, talking about one God, the Father, one Lord, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord. Right? So, So this is, a, this is a summary of Trinitarian doctrine. And this was written in 381 AD, so pretty early. 
And it was written as a summary of what our faith is. In particular, it was written in response to a particular heretic named Arius who said Jesus isn't God. And so then they're like, we need to, we need to write a creed about this because this is central to our faith, central to our salvation. You'll notice a lot of this is also about Jesus coming down and dying for our sins. Like this was a gospel issue for them. And I want to suggest to you that the Trinity is also a gospel issue for us too. It really is a, a fundamental belief of the Christian faith. So something worth, I think, saying about the Nicene Creed is that every major branch of Christianity actually affirms this statement, every single one. That's true of no other document. Um, and so the Trinity is something all Christians agree on, which is pretty cool. That's really cool. We don't agree on a whole lot, but we agree on the Trinity. There are some kind of zoomed in nuances that we don't agree about. We're going to talk about those. But as far as in bulk, everybody affirms this statement. It, it, not just in bulk. Every Christian affirms this statement. That's pretty cool. So if we want to like talk about unity, that's a cool way to do it. Anyway, why do we say it this way? Where does this come from? Why do we say it this way? Well, let's dig in. The Father is God. So we believe in one God, the Father, right? So there's some explicit Old Testament uh, passages that refer to God as Father. Deuteronomy 32. Is he not your Father who created you, who made you and established you? Psalm 68. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. And then really explicitly Isaiah 63 you, God, are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, O Lord, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from old is your name. So God is referred to as Father in the Old Testament. That's not like a new revelation in the New Testament. God has been Father this whole time. A number of other passages, Malachi chapter 1, God calls himself Father, Malachi 2, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? This one God is our one Father. So those are some passages from the Old Testament. I know that probably in particular that we were going to have the least number of questions about the Father being God. Um, but I think it's still worth throwing it out there um, to see, okay, hey, the, the Old Testament actually does say this. Um, there are a few more passages. I have Mostly, I just have pasted a bunch of Bible verses so you guys can refer to if you ever have questions kind of thing. I'm not going to read each and every one of these. Um, I have, yeah, like 30 or so for each one. So I'm not going to do that. Um, but the New Testament said, refers to God as Father even more than the Old Testament does. So looking at um, John 5, 17, this is after Jesus commits an unlawful Sabbath healing. He says, my Father is working until now, and I am working. That's also, we're going to talk about that as far as who Jesus is, but God is Father, isn't he? I mean, we see Jesus is calling God Father. Ephesians 4, 6, we have one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God is Father. Ephesians 1 opens up this way, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. God is Father. So God is identified as Father. That's his, that's, that's his identity. Um, 
I think we get the idea. I don't think I need to read the rest of these 25 verses. Um, <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, let's get 30, Vika. Come on, that's perfect. Yeah, amen. Okay, so God is identified as Father, Old Testament and New Testament. But then we're also, and this starts getting into some New Testament stuff, the Son is God. And this is where some people um, have been have asked some questions before. The Son is God, and so the Nicene Creed reads, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. The, one of my, fam- my favorite and the most famous verses is in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything was made that was made. Okay, so in the beginning was the Word. Okay, so that's the, and we learn in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that's talking about Jesus. The Word, the capital W, Word, that's referring to Jesus, right? Because that's who became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, so, okay, anyway, in the beginning was the Word. So in the beginning was Jesus. Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. Ooh, okay. And then that word, Jesus, is identified explicitly as the only Son from the Father. So there's God the Son, who is God, but God the Son is also with God. God the Father, from the Father. So now we have we have two personal identif- identities who both identify as God in the New Testament. Whoa, okay, we're getting into plurality now, and we're going to talk more about more about that. But So we're seeing, okay, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So someone is God who is not exactly, strictly speaking, the Father, because this God is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So God has made known God. Okay, we're gonna, let's look at a few more verses, and I'm sure we're going to have some questions about that, and I'm so excited to do those. Um, John 5, 17, 18, my father's work until now I'm working. We just read that passage. But then the Jews started seeking to kill him, verse 18, because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the Jews of Jesus' time understood his own, his claim to equality with the father as, you're making yourself equal with God. You're calling yourself, sorry, I misspoke. Him's calling himself the son of God makes the Jews say, hey, you're claiming to be equal with God. So Jesus' title, Son of God, communicated that Jesus was deity. They didn't like that. Well, they, they still don't like that. They, don't re- they, they reject the Jesus God, Jews of the modern day. But that's what Jesus was claiming when he called himself the Son, and that's what J- the Jews understood. I think a really helpful verse for people that are kind of like wrestling with, all right, what... Is Jesus God? What's going on? Is Mark chapter 2. Um, and I'm just going to read that right now. It's verses 4 to 12, uh, because this is a moment where Jesus does an action in order to communicate, hey, I'm the God who has the authority to forgive sins. So here we go. Mark chapter 2, verse 4. When they could not get near 
get near him because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So they're, let, they're bringing a paralytic through the roof because there's such a crowd around Jesus. They can't get to him. They want their friend to be healed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Wow. Who can say that? Well, that's what the Jews ask. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Nobody. That's the answer to that question. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in their spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them. So Jesus knows what they're thinking. Jesus perceives their motivation. And he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? Say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. So the obvious answer to that is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven so you don't have to prove it. Right. Because if I'm going to say, all right, get up and walk, but he doesn't, it's like, all right, well, on what ground can you forgive sins then, bro? Like, what do you, you know, you're just all talk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus is saying, I'm the God who has authority to forgive sins. Who can say what's easier? If you're just a human, what's easier? You can just all bark, no bite, right? All right, here's my bite. Get up. Yeah. Whoa, he's proven it. He's like, I'm the God, and so that you know it, I'm going to do something you can't do, that no one can do. I'm going to heal a paralytic. So yeah, I have authority to forgive sins. I'm God. Man, Woohoo. Jesus, yeah, this is our God, God. Man, oh, oh, this is good stuff. Okay, let's look at a few more passages. Hebrews 1.8 um, says this, But of the Son, he, that's the Father, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. That is just saying that the Son is God. Your throne, O God. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. The Son is God. Kaboom. It really can't skirt it. You know what I mean? All right. We'll keep going. 1 Corinthians 2.8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Who's the Lord of glory? Okay, yes. Yes. Is there another? Yes. Yes. That's what I was looking for. Sorry. It was a vague question. But you're right that it's Jesus, and you're right that it's God. Okay. Can God get crucified? That's like a, oh, ah, uh, what, what are you saying? That, but, okay, who's the Lord of glory? That's God alone, right? The Lord of glory. We're talking about Yahweh right now. I mean, this is the Old Testament God of glory who has been crucified. Well, who got crucified? That's Jesus. So Jesus is that Lord of glory. Romans chapter 9, verse 5. To them, that is the Jews, belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. So, okay, according to the flesh is the Christ. So he's a, he's a human. The sentence goes on. According to the, to, according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Okay, so Jesus was born, yep, according to the flesh. He was a Jew of physical lineage. And he's God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So he was born, but he's God over all. He's both. That's, that's mind-blowing. We're going to talk more about the incarnation uh, later in our, in our class. So 
as tempting as that is, I, I, I'm not going to talk about that right now. And I think, I think it's awesome. But for now, let's just notice, okay, this human man is himself God, is himself eternal. He had a human birth, sure, that's what Romans 9 is saying. But before he had a human birth, he's God blessed forever, amen. He's the Lord of glory. He's the one who has the authority to forgive sins, who's upholding the universe, John 1. That happened way before he got born. This man is God. And 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, is not explicit in calling Jesus, quote-unquote, God, but I want us to notice how the New Testament uses the word Lord, the word Lord, because sometimes people say, hey, okay, more often, and it's not exclusive, we just looked like literally the New Testament identifies the Son as God, so it's, it's not that the New Testament never calls Jesus God, but sometimes in the same sentence we'll have God identified as Father and Jesus identified as Lord, is that, and sometimes people are like, well, is that like a lesser title? I mean, God and Lord, there's human lords, you know? It's true that there are human lords, but you tell me who Lord is talking about in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. I don't think that Lord is like a lower Lord. Through whom are all things and through whom we exist, that can only be identifying God. In fact, the exact same phrase, through whom are all things and through whom we exist, is applied to, quote, God in Romans 11.36. So that phrase belongs to God and God alone. So this Lord is God. This Lord is Jesus. Jesus is the one through whom are all things. All things are sustained by him. It's through him that we exist. That's not just talking about some master, some lord. That's talking about God Lord. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay, one more, one more, one more quote here. Uh, Colossians 2:8. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Man, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Is he a man? Yeah. Does that mean he's not God? No, he's God. The whole fullness of deity dwells in him bodily, and you've been filled in him who's the head of all rule and authority. He's the head of all rule and authority. Gee, Yahweh doesn't share his authority with any other. What's going on? Because he's it. Jesus is him. Speaking of which, that's a nice transition into the divine name. And we've talked a little bit about this. Yahweh, in the Old Testament, when you see Lord in all caps, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Like you'll, sometimes there's L, lowercase O, lowercase R, lowercase D. That's just like normal Lord. But then specifically in the Old Testament, there's that cap, all caps Lord. Have you guys noticed that before? Mm -hmm. What that is, is... The translators are translating the divine name Yahweh. And the reason, for better or worse, and I'll just leave it at that, that people don't write Yahweh is because for a long history, the Jewish people didn't write Yahweh out of reverence for Yahweh, so they didn't write his name. They had such reverence for him that we now no longer even know how to pronounce it, which I think is a bummer. But anyway, that's not what we're here for. I'm... I'm bringing this up to say Yahweh is an identifier of who God is. That, that, that name comes for the first time when um, 
God appears to Moses in the burning bush and he says, I am who I am. You guys know that scene? That's where I am who I am. That's what Yahweh means. So from then on, as God is referred to as Yahweh, that comes back to the burning bush moment where God revealed himself as such. So Moses was talking to God. That's Yahweh. This is the God of Israel, Yahweh, right? Well, that name, Yahweh, from the Old Testament is applied to Jesus in the New Testament. So Joel, I'm going to read Joel 2 for us, and then I'm going to show how the New Testament quotes Joel 2 and applies what Joel is saying about Yahweh to Jesus. So Joel 2, 31-32 reads this. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. The day of the Lord in our English, all caps, L-O-R-D. That's Yahweh. The awesome day of Yahweh comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of Yahweh will be saved. So Yahweh is God, indisputably. That's who God is. God said, that's who I am, right? Okay, look at how Acts chapter 2 quotes Joel chapter 2 about Yahweh. Acts 2, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord, that's Yahweh, comes, the great magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, which is Old Testament Yahweh, shall be saved. Peter's talking about Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. Romans 10 makes the same argument. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The, Paul, who's Paul talking about in Romans 10? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament. Same thing happens, actually, we did the, just last week, I mentioned this in the sermon on Matthew 3, how Matthew quotes from Isaiah 40, which is talking about Yahweh. Anyway, same, same, same principle. So it happens a couple times. So anyway, the New Testament identifies Jesus as Yahweh, the I am. Like, I am who I am is who Jesus is, which is also what Jesus is doing, by the way, when he's talking to the Jews. And the Jews are like, oh, you've met Abraham, really? And Jesus is like, before Abraham was, I am. And it's just this like mic drop moment, you know. But Jesus is identifying himself as Yahweh. I am who I am. And then, yeah, obviously they don't like that because they don't think he's God. And all. it goes on. Anyway, okay. So Jesus is God. I won't quote these verses right now, but in uh, Luke and Matthew uh, and Mark, you can look at, I put this in the notes, the angels of God are also the angels of the Son of Man. The kingdom of God is also the kingdom of the Son of Man. And so Jesus owns what God owns. The angels, the kingdom, it's Jesus's in the same way that it's God's. Jesus is God. So that's what I have about God the Son. I want to open it to questions right now because I think this is kind of like how the Trinity like is founded like okay the individuals let's make sure we we kind of have nailed those does anyone have any questions at this point feeling good where do i start with questions that's good yeah yeah i feel like there's so there's yeah. a lot they were coming to mind yeah um how much time do you have we're here till 9 15. okay so there's uh why is it called the Trinity if there's only two parts? Okay, we're gonna keep going. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 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 That's good. That's good. All right. I'm gonna move into the Holy Spirit is God. Well, well said, Tommy. I, I like it. Yeah. Don't pause now, all. You know, we haven't, we haven't finished it. Amen. Okay. And then, so the Nicene Creed reads, "And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord who proceeds from the Father." 
Genesis 1-2, as early as Genesis 1, we see the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Putting that together, by the way, with John 1, in the beginning was the Father and the Son. That's all three of them together in the beginning. Like, we have, an, we have a witness about all three persons in the beginning, quote. Anyway, Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. God, you're everywhere. Holy Spirit, you're everywhere. 2 Corinthians 3. I quoted this in the sermon last week, but I'm going to quote it again here. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is another one of those, what Lord do we really think we're talking about right now? Who can transform me from glory into glory? That's God. That's not some human Lord. No. And it's a spirit. It literally is spirit. This can't refer to master or something like that. The Holy Spirit is God himself who transforms us as we behold the image, behold the glory of the Lord, he turns us more into the glory of the Lord because he is the Lord. Man, that's, oh, that's good. Acts chapter 5, Peter um, connects uh, the Holy Spirit to being God. When Ananias and Sapphira, they lie about how much they sold their land for, Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Skip down a couple of sentences. You have not lied to man, but to God. By you lying to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. Why? Because the Spirit is the Lord. The Holy Spirit is God. You're lying to God's face if you're lying to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is God himself. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 12. These things, that is these mysteries that weren't revealed in the Old Testament, but are now revealed in the New. God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So the argument here is, okay, in the way that I have a Spirit, and that helps me understand my person because my Spirit is me, the Holy Spirit is God and communicates to us knowledge of God himself because he is God himself. There's a few more verses. Let, let's look at those. The um, passages about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us as the new temple, I think are really significant for this conversation. So you've probably heard, oh, your body is a temple, right? And that's true. Amen. Because the Bible says, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. Why is that significant for talking about the Holy Spirit's deity is um, because in the Old Testament, where did God dwell physically? The tabernacle. Yes, the tabernacle of the temple, yeah. in other words. After the tabernacle, he dwelt in the temple. Yes, but well said, Tommy. So God dwelled in the temple. Okay, there ain't no temple anymore. Where does God dwell now? In us. Mm -hmm. What? The Holy Spirit is God. We are the temples. God's in us. We are living temples. And so that's a huge point for the deity of the Holy Spirit. Um, because in the same way that God dwelt in the Old Testament temple, so now the Holy Spirit dwells in us, the temples of God, these new temples. Plus, 
The divine name Yahweh from the Old Testament is also applied to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Um, Jeremiah 31. Uh, this, is, this is a big paragraph. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Jeremiah 31 it reads, the first sentence reads this. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh. And then he, he says it. Well, Hebrews 10 quotes Jeremiah 31, saying, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying what Jeremiah said, which was, what did Jeremiah, who, Jeremiah, what, who did Jeremiah say said this? Yahweh. Hebrews is saying the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh speaking through the prophets. So that name, Yahweh, that single name is applied to both, well, two, all three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Connecting that to the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name, the one name, not the names. They, they, don't, they don't have multiple names. It's one name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They share a singular name. Couple more. Uh, uh, the Holy Spirit makes us born. Quote, which is also what God does. Comparing jo uh, John three and First John three, the Spirit gives life, which is also what God does. Comparing First Timothy six with Second Corinthians three. I won't read those out loud because we got some some more gold to mine here. Um, but anyway, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Um, okay. There's a few passages where all three persons are identified. One of them, I, I mentioned this in the sermon last week, but Isaiah 48, God says, My glory I will not give to another. I am he, I am the first, I am the last. He goes on to say a bunch of things. I gave the whole paragraph here, but just so you can know where I'm skipping to. Verse 16, And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Wait a minute. I am he, I'm the first and the last. I don't give my glory to another. Now the Lord God has sent me. Yahweh, God, has sent me and his spirit. I don't give my glory to another. God has sent me. I don't give my glory to another. I've been sent by God. I'm, I'm God who doesn't give his glory to another. And he's also sent his Holy Spirit. That's the three of them. And so, but we also see they're not other than each other, are they? Because my glory, I will not give to another, but we have the sender, the sent, and the spirit. All three of whom are identified as God here. So, okay, the Father's not other than the Son. The Son is not other than the Holy Spirit. They are all God, He, the first and the last, who gives His glory to no other. That's mind-blowing, and we're going to talk more about it. So, hang on. Um, a few, yeah, a few other places where the whole Trinity is identified. Matthew 3, where Jesus is baptized. The Father says, this is my Son, who I'm well pleased. The Son is there being baptized. The Holy Spirit descends on him. All three are there. Mm -hmm. Go make disciples in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, baptizing them. John 14, 16, I'll ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. All three are li listed there. I is Jesus. The Father is the Father. The helper is the Holy Spirit. There's a number of other ones. Um, I listed the Great Commission twice. Sorry about that. So I, that's got to count against my 25. That's only 24. Um, <laughs> Um, okay, anyway, there's a bunch of verses here. If you're interested in looking at where all three persons are identified together, then that, there, I, I have a big long list there. Um, I, I'll read, well, well, let's, let's find one, one more just to... Just Do you have any to, Old Testament ones in there? 
So Isaiah 48 is is one that I just read about. I give my glory to another. The Lord has sent me and his spirit. In the Old Testament, we don't, as far off the top of my head, I can't think of a passage that explicitly says Father, Son, and Holy Spirit the way that I just said it yeah. like that in terms of their um, identities like that. But I do see in Isaiah 48, there's a God who gives his glory to no other who is sent by God, who gives his glory to no other, and who also sends his spirit. Yeah. You know, so I, I do see that as pretty in your face, but it's not like you're, like you're maybe scratching your head about Tommy or asking. It doesn't identify them by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit like the New Testament does in the same sentence. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yep, 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 yep. Cool, cool, cool. Okay, right on. Okay, so we've talked about the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. There's also, there's one God though, right? So there's two relevant attributes of God here. One is that God is one, and the other is that God is unique. And so if there's three gods, well then God isn't unique anymore, is he? So God is unique. God is one. There's only one God. We're not polytheists as much as some might... (coughs) wonder about. We believe in one God, the Father, and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord who proceeds from the Father. One God, not three. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, that's Yahweh, which is a reference to all three persons, right? As we've seen, the the Bible does that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. Okay, so there may be three personal identities that are represented by Yahweh, by that name Yahweh, but Yahweh is only one God. My glory I will give, I will not give to another. There is no other. There is no other here with God. Matthew 28, that's the name, the singular name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One name, three persons. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The other half is a warning, but it's not about believing that God is one. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. His point is like, so go get to work, you know, but he's assuming that God is, in fact, one. John 10, 30, this is Jesus speaking. I and the Father are one. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might, Jeremiah 10. Lots of verses like that. So, okay, now let's get to, okay, we have three persons, as we're calling them, but we have one God. Okay. Why is it meaningful to say that? What is the, how can we distinguish between the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit? I think that's an important question. And so we come to the, this phrase of the Nicene Creed, the Son is begotten of the Father. The quote from the Nicene Creed, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. So most of the time, I think when we unfortunately read begotten, we just think of like the King James version and we're like, all right, what, what gives, right? So I know that. Um, and I am about to suggest that we find some significance in begotten. So here, all right, here we go. That, that's where we're going. But okay. The English only begotten is represented by, I'm not going to do a ton of Greek, don't worry, but the Greek word monogenes. You, you know mono, that's only, right? Like this is the only, so, so the only son, right? But there is a genes. Ganes comes from ginomai, which means it means this, to be or to become or to come into existence 
or to be born. In a word, only begotten. So there's a difficulty here, obviously. This is why people are like, King James, why are you putting it up in there? What's going on here? Why are you saying Jesus began? You know? So it sure sounds, here's the difficulty. Only begotten sure sounds like the Son is being created or is beginning to exist, right? To become, to come into existence, to be born. Now, it can also mean to be. Okay, it can, it, it, so just throw on that there. But it can also mean these other things. So that's the difficulty, right? And it's true that the Son is born in around 6 BC, or for the sake of simplicity, 0 AD, right? Like 2,000 years ago. So in that sense, he began, sure, but the, the God the Son is eternal, right? So he's not created or born as far as his personal divine identity goes. He's born as a man, but he's not born as God, right? So what gives? So the ESV leaves half of monogenes untranslated, as do, I don't want to say most, but a lot of English translations. And they'll say only instead of only begotten. As we've seen, that's half of the word. And I'm not totally dissing that, but I am going to kind of push on it. So we often ignore the word begotten, and I understand why. I understand why. It's this like KJV kind of weird word, and it's like, uh, really, what are we doing here? Just say only, and it makes more sense. The early church in the first couple hundred years actually relied on the word begotten. That's why I'm making a big deal about it, um, and we'll see in a moment. So Cyril of Jerusalem is someone I... I put, I put the annotated bibliography this time at the bottom. That way people can do their own like kind of reading and stuff. So um, that was something people requested. So I did that. So here's Cyril of Jerusalem. He's a preacher from AD 350. And he has a lot to say about begotten. So I, I'm not going to read everything that he... I have some paragraphs here. You can read that on your own. But he says, look, only begotten means he's unique and he has no siblings of equal rank. That's what he takes begotten to mean. He goes on to say Jesus was begotten eternally and uniquely and not the way that humans beget. So humans, the way we beget is via like creation. I was created in 1995. That's when I was created. But that's, so that's my begottenness. But Jesus' begottenness is unlike human begottenness. That's what Cyril is saying. He's also begotten timelessly. His begetting is outside of time begotten timelessly, and also begotten in a way that we cannot explain. So putting all that together, he's begotten eternally, timelessly, uniquely, unexplainably, and unlike humans, beget. That's what we're working with. That's what they understood begetting to mean. But they relied on it. Um, I'm going to tell you that in a moment. Um, Okay, but I've highlighted, if you're looking at the notes, maybe you are, maybe you aren't, I put in the five cases in the New Testament where only begotten, monogenes, is applied to God the Son. I have, just in case you want to read those, John 3.16 is one of them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Begotten, begotten, begotten. Okay, cool. Significantly, begotten does not refer to Jesus becoming born as a human. That's not what begotten refers to. If you look at John 1.18, which some of you are, some of you aren't, so I'll just read it. The only begotten, verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So that can't refer to his birth because people saw him after his birth, didn't they? 
They saw his humanity. This is what um, 1 John uh, chapter 1 talks about. We see the word of life. We have touched it with our hands. We've seen it. I've seen God. But one of God's attributes is invisibility, right? Well, okay, that's what happened at the incarnation. God became visible because he became a man. That's what John's talking about in chapter 1 of 1 John. But in John chapter 1 of his gospel, in verse 18, he's saying, no one's ever seen him, the only begotten God, who's at the Father's side, he's made him known. So this begottenness is not a begottenness of humanity. That's not what it is. It's an eternal begottenness, which is what Cyril is saying is happening here. The only begotten God who's at the Father's side. This is God the Son who's been begotten timelessly, eternally, without beginning. That's mind-blowing. I, I admit that. But that's, that's, I think, what we have to say. So, thus we have, in the Nicene Creed, what I'm calling line six, those like numbers, I put those there so we could refer to them. Begotten, not made, same nature with the Father. So Jesus, the Son, God the Son, is begotten of the Father. But he's not made. He's not made. He didn't begin. He is just begotten from him, not made. He's the same nature with the Father. Remember those attributes of God? Those attributes of God refer to God's nature, right? So they're saying the Son and the Father are identical in terms of what they are. Same nature with the Father. Sure, he's begotten of the Father without time. In understandably, but he's the same nature, it's the same God. So that's what they're saying. And I think that's a very helpful summary of the identity of the Son. Um, and I'll, like two more minutes and then, and then I'll open this up for questions. So this brings us to, okay, the meaning of only begotten. What does it mean? What does it mean? Cyril has explained some stuff. For us practically, what, am I really gonna walk up to people? And maybe I will, but. Oh, well, that just means he was begotten eternally, timelessly, uniquely, ununderstandably, and unlike humans, but yeah, it's no problem. You know, okay, what, in a word, what does this mean? This, is, this brings us to the doctrine of eternal generation. Eternal generation. Eternal generation says that God the Son is in some sense from the Father eternally. From the Father eternally, which is why he's identified as a son from his Father. Now, he's not a son from his father in the sense that humans are from their fathers. I was from my father, and that's 1995. Jesus is from his father, and that's eternal. Had no time. But he's from the father still. This is, I admit, this is mind-blowing. There's a few verses, I think, that'll put this in, in frame for us. John 5, 26. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. That second himself is about Jesus. So the, the Father has life in himself from no one. From no one. John 5, 26. The Son has life in himself from the Father. A few more. A few more. John 17, 7. Now they know. Now God they know. This is as he's praying. He's about to go to the cross. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you everything. Life itself. As the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. Everything you have given me is from you. Even John 17 goes on. There's a lot to say about the Trinity in John 17. After we're done with the Trinity, man, you guys should read John 17. It's going to be like, whoa, this is like way cooler than I thought. I think that every time I read. Okay, anyway, John 17, 11 and 12. Holy Father, keep them in your name. 
your name. What's, what's the Father's name? Among others, Yahweh, right? Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. The Father gave the Son his name, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Where did the Son get that name from? From the Father, eternally, without beginning, right? It didn't have like a time, okay, now the Son has begun. No, no, no. The Son is eternal. He shares all the attributes of the Father, doesn't he? And one of the attributes of God is eternality, timelessness. And we qualified that and we said God is outside and inside of time. He's not constricted either way. Okay, amen, amen, amen. But they're both eternal. Neither of them had a beginning. Both of them are eternally the source of everything, right? And yet the the Son is in some sense from the Father. John 17, 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. The glory of God, one of the attributes of God, the Son received from the Father. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Everything I have, I have received from my Father. Okay, how we doing? I, I, this is a head scratcher and I recognize that, but we're also dealing with a God who is greater than us and is not like us, right? Like the way that we beget, the way that I am from my dad or the way that my kids someday, Lord willing, will be from me is gonna be finite. You know, it's, it's gonna, those kids and their dad are not gonna have the attributes of God. But God has the attributes of God. And so he can beget in this way. So that's why I make a big deal about begotten, because this is the only distinction that I'm aware of that most of the church throughout history has been aware of in terms of how to eternally distinguish between the Father and the Son is that, well, he's begotten. That's the, that's the only, that's all we, you know, um, and that's the Trinity, the me, that's, only the only begotten Son of God. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit, and then we'll we'll open it up because this is going to be pretty similar. The Holy Spirit is proceeding from the Father, and the quote from the Nicene Creed says, "And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord who proceeds from the Father." So, what does proceeding mean? We're going to handle this similar to begotten. That's how the early church did, and I think that's what the Bible tells us to do as well. So, this is similar to how we ought to understand how the Son is begotten. The Holy Spirit is proceeding eternally, timelessly, uniquely, ununderstandably, and unlike humans, proceed. (laughs) So we don't know all of how, what the mechanics of what go into divine, eternal procession, but it's glorious, and it's not like how we proceed. You know, God is glorious, right? All of God's attributes are relevant to all of God. Eternal procession is awesome, ineffable, right? It's it's all these things. Anyway, so what does eternal procession mean? Rubber meets the road. Give me something better than eternally, timelessly, uniquely, ineffably, and unlike humans proceed. Okay. God, the Holy Spirit, is in some sense from God the Father, proceeding from the Father. God, the Holy Spirit, is in some sense from the Father. John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. 
So in this passage, the Holy Spirit is yet to be sent by Jesus, but the Holy Spirit is said to be currently actively proceeding from the Father in the same way that the Son is begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit is proceeding from the Father. And so this brings us to talking about this is good. This is good. This is exactly this is exactly where we want to be right now. Oh yeah, this is good. Okay, um, I was like, are we gonna be behind? Heck no. Okay, um, so these are called the, these begotten and proceeding. Those are maybe funny words for us, and I I recognize that. But what they are, what we call them, is eternal relations. Or some, maybe you've heard the phrase relations of origin. Maybe you haven't, and that's okay. But basically, eternal relations, I'm going to call them eternal relations. The relation, the, 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 the eternal relations refer to the relationship between each of the three divine persons, the eternal relations. And so I think this is going to be significant because we often say salvation is about relationship with God, right? And, and we're right about that. I, I love that we say that because we're absolutely right. In John 17, when Jesus is talking about his relation with the Father, I, am, I did this, that in the same way that you loved me, so we would love them, we get to participate in the relations of the Trinity. That's what salvation's all about. Okay, so that's where we're going. Anyway, the relations, the relationship between each of the three divine persons. The Father is unbegotten and unproceeding. The Son is begotten not proceeding. The Holy Spirit is proceeding and not begotten. That's how they relate. That's what we know about how they relate. We know a little bit more than just that. And I kind of hinted at the, the love aspect. Anyway, so, but that they've related in that way eternally. God doesn't change, right? So it's not like, oh, I'm now, now I'm unbegotten since I've gotten begotten. No, no, he's eternally begotten, right? That's, how, that's his relation to the Father. What did that look like? Well, they shared glory together, John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I mean, they, they continued to be God before creation, right? They, they're eternal. They're unchanging. Those are some of their attributes. So they had glory. Their relation was one of glory. John 17, 23. So that the world may know that you've sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Um... So they may see my glory, so that my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Their relation was one of love, one of love. And then John 17, 26 continues that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Talk about an awesome salvation statement. Oh, we could share in the love of the person to the Trinity. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the point I'm making right now is that relation between the Father and the Son, between the three persons of the Trinity, was one of love. It was one of love. So, okay. Let's talk about the difference between a nature and a person. We've talked about the nature. That's the attributes of God. That refers to God's nature. He is unchangeable. He is glorious. He's all-wise. He's everywhere present. He's all powerful, right? So that's true of all three. Nature does not refer to personhood. Nature refers to the attributes that each person has. Their eternal relations are what we have to distinguish them as persons. So they have the same nature. The Father 
is everything in his nature that the Son is, that the Holy Spirit is, and they relate to one another in distinct ways, eternally. Um, sometimes, I'm going to really quickly say this, sometimes people will refer to those relations as properties. For example, saying, the Father has the property of being unbegotten, unproceeding. The Son has the property of being begotten. The Spirit has the property of being proceeding. And that's fine. I think that's, I mean, that's true. The reason I don't love the language of properties, and I, I get this from my, my Trinity uh, professor, um, he made the point, and I really like it. Look, when we talk about the nature of God, we have a list of attributes. When I say the word properties, properties sounds synonymous with attributes. Like when I talk about the characteristics of this whiteboard, it's hard, okay, so that's its attribute, attribute of hardness, has its characteristic of hardness, it has a property of hardness. Those are like synonyms, you know? So I just don't want to communicate that there is, that there is something different in terms of what they are. That's why I'm, I'm not going to use the term properties. As you read books and stuff and hear people talk about they'll they may talk about property, and that's fine. I'm just, I'm trying to emphasize those properties. Really, what we're getting at is they, those are relations. Because the Father is identical with the Son, is identical with the Spirit in terms of what they are. Their only, quote-unquote, difference is in their relation with one another. Are we together? Yeah. We're, 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 we're really churning, and I understand that. Okay. Okay. They are identical in terms of what they are. The, the Father is not different than what the Son is. The Holy Spirit is not different than what the Son or Father is. They are identical in terms of what they are. Their only difference, their only distinction is in terms of how they relate to one another. The Son relates as begotten. The Holy Spirit relates as proceeding. The Father relates as unbegotten and unproceeding. You might... To, to use another word to describe that, maybe you could say the Father is source, as long as we're saying he's the source eternally without creating anybody and in a way that we can't understand. You know, but he's the, so that, those are their relations with one another. Those are their eternal distinctions. This is going to be a, the, I'm, I'm so excited that we're on time. I'm never on time. This is awesome. Okay. Um, this brings us, though, to the question. So the Father did not get crucified. That didn't happen. It was the son who got crucified, right? Specifically. So eternally, we only are able to distinguish them as far as their eternal relations go. But then once they start operating in creation, we can identify similar to how there's distinctions in their personhood, in their relations with one another, their personal identities, we might say. We can identify distinctions in a similar vein in terms of how they operate in the world. So, in the beginning, God created, right? God created the world. That's, a, that's an operation. That, that's, there's a number of theological terms. Operation is one of them, and that's the one I'm going to use. Divine operations, how God interacts with creation. God created the world. That's a divine operation. He operated. He worked. He did something. Also, God sustains the world. Colossians 1.17. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. He holds the universe together. That's a divine operation. So that's what God is doing, right? Now, I've mentioned there's going to be distinctions in some of their operations, but we also need to say, and yeah, whew, this is going to be blowing. It blows my mind. And maybe you're just able to handle it better than me, but inseparable operations says this. This is the doctrine of inseparable operations says everything that one person does, each person does. Because God's one. 
right? God is one. God. It's not like there's a part of God which is the Son and there's a part of God which is the Holy Spirit. That's not the case. They are identical in terms of what they are. Whew. Oh boy, I don't know. Yeah, it's awesome. Okay, but so because one, yeah, one of God's attributes is that He is one. But then again, in the same way, there are distinctions between the persons who are one God. So there are sometimes distinctions in the operations of these persons who are one God. Okay, for example, let me let's get back to some non-run-on sentences. Who who sent the Son into the world? God did do that, yes. And what was the person? The Father. The Father, yes. Who is God? So you're both absolutely yeah. correct. Yes. So the Father sent the Son. The Holy Spirit did not send the Son. That wasn't the operation that they operated. The Father sent the Son. John 20, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Also, who became incarnate? The Son. The Son, that's right. John, uh, excuse me, Matthew 3, 17. This is my beloved Son with whom I, the Father, am well pleased. It's the Son who got baptized in a human body. That's the Son. Who came down at Pentecost? The Spirit, amen. Acts 2, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues the Spirit gave them. Okay, so there's distinctions, and yet they did it all together. <laughs> okay, John 14 says this, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is going to be inside of you guys. The Holy Spirit is going to be inside of you. But is it just the Holy Spirit without the Son? No. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. How? Because the Holy Spirit's in me. Therefore, Jesus is with me. Inseparable operations. So there's distinctions, but there's also unity. And we're going to be bouncing around different ways to try to figure that out. I think, I think I'm going to go for it. Okay, so a question. This is going to lead us into some controversy. So this is a, a little dip our toe in the water. It's 9.12, so we, we have a little bit of time. I know we want to be out by 9.15. Are the operations, are the operations, the ways that God interacts with creation, are those representative of the eternal relations? What, what am I even asking? Okay, in other words... And I have a few in other words because these controversies are such that we need to ask it in certain ways. Is the Son sent by the Father into the world as an operation because the Son is from the Father eternally? It, in other words, is Jesus' fromness from the Father the reason that he is the one who is sent into the world by the Father? Is there a continuity there or does it just happen to be? Are there operations representative of their eternal relations or do their eternal relations cause their operations to work the way that they do maybe another way to say that can i learn about the eternal relations by observing the operations okay this is how the father sent the son does that teach me about jesus's fromness from the father or not that's that's a question on the western part of the globe, people generally tend to answer yes. Uh, Augustine is an example of this, and pretty much the West just takes Augustine, swallows him whole, and regurgitates him completely without asking about it. And that's 
neither here nor there. But here we go. This is what Augustine says. Sorry, that, I didn't. Anyway, here we go. So this is what Augustine says in his book on the Trinity. That's in the the the, uh, the uh, what do you call it? Bibliography. I couldn't. Gosh, help me, Lord. Okay. This this is what he says. The Son is sent in the world because he is from the Father eternally. Uh, that's a paraphrase. Sorry, I made it. I, I italicized it as if it wasn't. Sorry. But that's what Augustine says. Look, it's the Son who's sent because he's from the Father eternally. That's just what it is. Well, Eastern Christianity, in particular Eastern Orthodoxy, says, well, that's not so true. Where do I weigh in? Maybe you're wondering. Okay. Now, I think that this is in particular something we should maybe even just say, these things are too high for me. Like, th this is, we're talking about God. What do I know about what begotten is and what procession is? We literally don't positively know, except to say that they are from the Father in some sense, literally, ineffably. So we, we need to, let's let's be careful before we just say, oh, easy! Yeah. So anyway, but let, let's think about it a little bit, and this will give us some food for thought as we delve into some controversies later on. I'm personally inclined to say, yes, I'm inclined to say that from the way that God interacts with the world, we can understand how God is, because th maybe this is just an in general thought. I think the way that God interacts with us is in order to reveal himself to us. That, that's a take that I have. A few verses to point out um, why I, I'm inclined to say that. And, but to be fair, I'm in the western part of the globe, so maybe I'm just drinking the water, you know? But anyway, John 17 says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is the, the words of uh, the upper room discourse, last conversation with the disciples before his crucifixion, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over our flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. It seems there that the father gave the son everything that is eternally, right? The son is from the father. The father gave the son everything eternally. And that that giving is somehow related to the fact that the son gives us eternal life. Since you've given him authority over our flesh to give eternal life to all those who have been given to him. It seems like Jesus is connecting his own fromness from the Father with his motivation for coming to save us. That's what that seems to be saying to me. Similarly, John 17, 7. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Well, how do they now know that? Because Jesus just is about to give salvation. And so the way in which Jesus gives salvation is somehow going to teach us that everything that Jesus has is from the Father. So our, somehow it seems to me that this is saying our salvation, the fact that Jesus came to give us our salvation, shows us that eternal relation, that whatever the Son has, the Father gave it. But again, we don't know a lot to say positively about the eternal relation, so let's have a sense of humility here. At the very least, and this really does perfectly line us up for a really interesting controversy, but we're not going to talk about that. We believe in, this is what we positively believe. We believe in one God, the Father, who created everything sovereign over all, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. I'm I'm going to go back up there because I thought I could remember it, but I, I'm not. We believe in one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who was begotten from the Father before all ages, 
begotten, not made, same nature with the Father, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord who makes us alive, who proceeds from the Father, who is worshipped and glorified together with the Father and the Son. Amen. Amen.